You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, the clock was running, and time was running out. Russell Wilson pulled back from the line, and he was rolling to his left. He looked down the field. He saw he had a receiver streaking towards the end zone, and he put the ball up. Time seemed to stop for a moment. There was another man down the field, a man named uh, Lance Easley. Lance Easley kind of had a rough growing up, um, a little too much of the bottle, and uh, an injury to his foot that took him out of sports and out of his military career. When he was about 25 years old, though, God got a hold of Lance Easley and begin to turn his life around through a small group. God pulled him into a small group and met a group of people who began to grow in his faith. And he met a woman there who had immigrated from Mexico. The two got married. He got a job and started uh, refereeing for high school football games. And then through an NFL strike and a fluke of nature, Lance Easley found himself on the gridiron for Monday night football as a referee. And the ball is coming at him towards a clump of uh, uh, players. Hands go up, a forest of hands, and they all seem to take the ball down and drop to the ground. And he can't quite tell who actually made the catch. Lance easily remembers uh, looking to the judge, and the back back judge, and uh, looks at him and he goes, there's no way we're going to have time to talk about this thing, or in his own words, the media will crucify us. And so he just makes his own decision. He throws his hands up in the air, touchdown Seattle Seahawks, right? Amen? And we, and that was good news for us. But it was very bad news for Lance Easley. <clears throat> the next morning, Lance and his wife woke up and they looked out the windows of their home and they saw strange cars. Uh, gathering outside of their home. There was a phone call that came from the NFL and said, Lance, you're going to need some security. And uh, there have been, ever since then, death threats that he has lived with. Because uh, apparently the opinion of of everybody else after the fact was that that was not the right uh, call to make and that he gave the game uh, to the Seahawks. Interesting moment in his life. Tough moment in his life. And now wherever he goes, uh, people recognize him and they uh, criticize him and it's hard even now to referee for high school football games. And last fall there was an article that caught my eye in the Washington Post. Lance said an interesting thing. He said, does one moment in your life really define who you are? Because it kind of seems like that way for him. Does one moment in your life define who you are? David had moments like that. David had a moment uh, of brilliance. So bright that it seemed almost like his last name had been changed in perpetuity. You know, it would no longer be David, son of Jesse, but David and Goliath. That David, oh yeah. He had another moment. Didn't he? A moment that also uh, changed his last name. Now, uh, because of one unfortunate late afternoon, David is known to history not only as David and Goliath, but David and 
Bathsheba. And you and I have had our moments as well. We all do. And the question this morning is not whether you were fail or not. The only question is how will you respond when you do? God sends his word to disrupt the disaster of David's life as it is rapidly unfolding into chaos. It's a word of forgiveness and it comes on the lips of a prophet named Nathan who comes telling a little story. I want to invite you to read that story with me aloud together. And my prayer is that God's word, Jesus Christ, would be present to us as we attend to this word together so that he might disrupt the chaos in our lives as well and reassure us that we too are a forgiven people. Will you open up your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 12 verses 1 through 6, which you'll find on page 248 of the Pew Bible. And if you're able, would you stand and let's read this word of God together. I'd actually like to ask you to begin with the end of chapter 11, just that one phrase that's lying on top of chapter 12, and end a little bit after verse 6. Take the first line of verse 7, and we'll end with Nathan's words, you are the man. If you believe this, you can say, thanks be to God when I say this is the word of the Lord. But for now, listen carefully. You're reading God's sacred word. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took that poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And she shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. It's a familiar story. If it's not, I hope you'll read the story of David and Bathsheba in chapter 11 and chapter 12. But if you come to it, as I think many of us do through the popular imagination, you might think, as I uh, did, that you could just boil this down, really, basically, these two chapters into uh, one simple rule. Avoid adultery, avoid murder, and especially avoid people like Nathan, right? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but you know what? That's not what these two chapters are about. That would be failure management. That's the work that David's engaged in. But you know what? This story, through the inspired narrator, is not a story of failure management. It ultimately is a story of the intervention of God's forgiveness and the power of forgiveness to transform 
our lives and our futures. What we would expect, I think, coming from the popular imagination when we approach this text, that there'd be a lot of information, many words, to describe David's transgression, the nature of his relationship with Bathsheba, the horrors and the shame of that, and, and so forth. But what we find is not that. And we find that that story is really but a moment, one moment. In fact, the narrator gives it to us in a single verse. Uh, verse 4, if you want to look at it. Uh, just a kind of a, a very efficient and brief repetition of verbs, mostly. Tell the whole story. David sent messengers. She came to him. He lay with her. She returned to her house. Boom, that's it. That's the transgression with Bathsheba. No, the story that this narrator wants to tell us is not that story. He wants to tell you what happens after the moment. He wants you to see where failure can go if it's not interrupted by forgiveness. You see, David hardens his spirit and he engages in three cover-ups. And this is the story of chapter 11, the description of these elaborate cover-ups. The first one I would describe as deception. Rather than being known as a person who failed in this way, David concocts a, a strategy of deception. He says to himself, well, I'll just bring Bathsheba's husband back from the battle line, Uriah, and then nine months later, voila, <laughs> look, Uriah had a kid. Deception. But Uriah, as it turns out, resists this. He's a man of principles, and he will not go home while the Lord's army is in the field. So David has got a problem on his hands. He's got to come up with, he thinks, another way to cover his failure. The second one is manipulation. Well, maybe I can impose on the will of Uriah to get him to do what he wouldn't otherwise do, and so David has a party. I'll get him all boozy and send him home in a fog. And again... Because Uriah is a man of discipline, this doesn't work. So finally, David, seemingly having his back against the wall and no other alternative but to persist in a cover-up that must work, he comes up with a devastating plan to send Uriah back to the front with a notice of its execution. Joab would order him to the front line and then withdraw his troops just at the moment of peril and Uriah would perish. Uriah, by the way, was one of David's closest allies. Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men, the so-called 30, one of his most loyal soldiers. And at this point in his life, you would hardly even recognize David. He's come so far from who we've known him to be, to destroy not only Uriah, but when the messenger comes back from Joab, he has to report to David that not only Uriah is dead, but the whole cohort of men that were with Uriah perished in the battle. Oh. It breaks our hearts, but the narrator notes the pitiless heart of David at this point. Because here's what David says. I mean, you wouldn't even recognize him. He says in verse 25, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now, 
and one, now one and, an, and now another. You see, you know, people die. This is life. And all of a sudden, wow, you ask yourself, who have you become? You're no longer the servant king. You're an absolutely despotic king. You have leveraged the lives of others just to cover your own failure. This is horrible. That's the story that this writer wants us to see. How a moment can become a destiny when it's not intersected by God's forgiveness. Lord Acton, writing famously on, on power, says power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And no doubt we see that dynamic in this, in this king. And yet there's more at work, I think. It's, it's more a story of how he uses and abuses his power to cover his failure. I think it's failure that's driving the narrative. It makes me begin to ask, what ways do I use the power that we all have in our lives to cover my own failure, to protect my secrets, to avoid disclosure? Greg Allman is one of the Allman brothers. He just published a biography last year. It's got an interesting title, My Cross to Bear, he calls it. And a lot of it's about uh, his relationship with his brother, Dwayne. When their father was murdered, tragically, these two brothers were all they had, and they became very close to one another. They played the guitar. They taught each other how to play the guitar. They bought a cheap guitar, and actually, Dwayne, uh, Greg's brother, would be the real master of the guitar. In 2003, Rolling Stone magazine would say Dwayne Allman was the second best guitarist who ever lived behind Jimi Hendrix. And these two guys, they played the guitar together, they uh, served in the military together, and uh, they lived their lives together until 1971, Greg tells us, they got in a fight. In 1971, uh, they had a falling out. It was over money and it was over drugs. And Greg said, you know, one day at the height of this thing, I broke into Dwayne's house. I stole the drugs back. And then when he asked about it, I lied. I lied. I covered it up. He says, ever since then, I've been seeking an elusive forgiveness. That's 40 years. You know what happened? Shortly after that lie, Dwayne Allman lost his life in a tragic motorcycle accident. And here's what Greg says in his uh, biography. The last thing I ever said to my brother was a lie. I thought of that lie every day of my life. And I just keep re-crucifying myself for it. I know that's not what he would want. Well, not for long anyway. <laughs> But the thing is, I never got the chance to tell him the truth. That moment became a destiny. And the truth breaks into David's life because God loves him. God graciously sends the prophet to intercept the connection between that moment and this devastating slide that David's in. Nathan comes and he says, you are the man. You are the man. And it wakes David up to the fact that there is a God who loves him. There is a God who forgives him. The climax of this story, it seems to me, is in chapter 12, verse 13, where as you read it, again, this beautifully efficient narrator gives us a moment that seems like time has stopped. David and Nathan stand face to face in the presence of the Lord. Clearly, 
And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Do you see how this prophetic word of forgiveness overturns David's own judgment on his life? David had said, surely that man deserves to die. Many of us articulate our own death sentence when we think about our failure. This is what we deserve. And God's grace steps into our lives and said, don't you believe that for a second? You have a God in heaven who loves you and you are forgiven. Full stop. And you and I tend to say, could it really be that simple? Could it really be that easy? And Nathan says, it's true, there are consequences to David's failure. And God loves us enough to let those have meaning in human history. But the narrator raises the question for us, I think, the critical question, what if, what if David had been awake to God's forgiveness in his life the day of his failure? If God's forgiveness had stopped David in the moment of failure and he'd stood instead of in the failure in God's forgiveness. No need for these cover-up plans at that point. No need for the devastated lives. Bathsheba's, Uriah's, and then thousands within David's own family and within this nation. Forgiveness would have made the difference. If David had only known God forgives God breaks the hardness of spirit. It's like God saying to David, as I believe he's saying to us, I've created you in love. And even if we just think about the, the, the series that we're in and the things that we've been learning, God's saying to you, I've chosen you. I've empowered you. I've bound you to myself and to others. I protected you. And now, before the beginning of time, before the foundations of the earth, in Jesus Christ, David, and you, I have forgiven you. And that's good news for me. I don't want to just know that. I want that to be my experience. I want that to become my destiny. You're a rich man. You're a rich man, David. And so are we. So, how do you respond to moments of failure in your own life. How do you tend to respond to moments of failure? I mentioned to you before Brene Brown. She's given a couple of TED lectures that I think are quite interesting. You can hear them online. And Brene Brown is a researcher at University of Houston in the School of Social Work. And she's done some interesting research on what makes a person what she calls a wholehearted person. She says, I just noticed through my research, there are certain people that seem to rise to the surface as people who are wholehearted people who live with great courage in their lives. And she says, I want to tell you what I found. It's very counterintuitive. And that is that the measure of wholehearted people, the measure of people who live with courage, the best indicator is vulnerability. Vulnerability. How do you handle your own vulnerability? And the problem with vulnerability is that at its core are emotions like shame, fear, grief. And, and we don't like those emotions and we, we tend to develop strategies to distance ourselves from them, to cover them over, to, 
to numb them. And, and here Brene Brown says that the, 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 the problem with numbing our emotions is that you can't do that selectively. See, see if you and I try to numb one part of our affect, we tend to numb the other parts as well. And as we numb those negative emotions, we also begin to numb things like happiness and gratitude and joy and love. He says, you know, as Americans, the research is showing us that we're the most uh, medicated cohort of adults in the history of uh, our country. She cites statistics on obesity and debt and, uh, and, and addiction and a whole host of things. She gave this uh, first TED talk and she got sort of a lot of publicity for it and her phone started to ring a lot. It was corporations who wanted her to come and speak in their boardrooms and do their offsites. And she said, it was so interesting. They all said the same thing. They said, Brene Brown, would you come and speak? We loved your TED talk. And they say, we just would like you to, to speak on anything but not vulnerability. <laughs> She's like, well, what would you like me to speak on? And they said, oh, we'd love to hear from you on the subjects of innovation or creativity or change. And uh, she says, well, let me go on record and tell you that vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation and creativity and change. The people who live with courage wholeheartedly are the people who do not cover over their vulnerability. They're people who can live with their failures and the fear of failing in the future. They're people who can embrace their vulnerability, she says. See, and I think there's something about David, isn't there? And his humility that allows him to live with such resilience and vitality. As a man of hope. And I think it comes from this moment of experiencing God's forgiveness. In his vulnerability, God moves him from failure to forgiveness. He takes his self-condemnation, I must die. The man who did this must die and turns it into God's expression of grace. The Lord has put away. You shall not die. <laughs> Live. And here's what I want to send you home with this morning don't manage your failure receive God's forgiveness don't manage your failure the fear of failure open up your heart to receive the forgiveness of God it's going to change your destiny I think David turns this moment into a lifestyle that's what Psalm 51 says to me. You know, Psalm 51 has been associated with this moment in David's life. It's been associated with David. The tradition has it that he's the author of it. If you read it, it's just reverberating with echoes of this, of this moment. But Psalm 51 is a prayer that was part of the worship life of, I believe, David and I believe ancient Israel, which means it's a reiterative prayer. You go back to it again and again and again. And it's in this prayer that we find this invitation to you and to me to live with a broken spirit. In Psalm 51 and verse 17, David says the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What's a broken spirit? It's, it's, it's a spirit of autonomy that's broken within us. Break open your sense that you don't need me, says God. I'll tell you what a broken spirit is not. It's, it's not a spirit of shame. It's not a spirit of fear. 
It's not a spirit of slavery. It's a spirit of freedom. It's a hopeful spirit, a broken spirit. That's why Jesus calls his followers to a broken spirit with his first great sermon. The first words, actually, Ken is the one that pointed out to me the Beatitudes, the first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or as Eugene Peterson paraphrases, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. Do you hear the hopefulness of that? So how do you respond to the moments of failure in your own life? Remember, it's, it's not if, it's when, but how do you respond? Is your spirit defensive or broken? Are, are you managing your failures or receiving forgiveness? Came across a cartoon in the New Yorker that I kind of like that uh, it's a funeral and there's a woman standing in front of a, her mother's casket and she's at the lectern and she's addressing those who are gathered and she said, Mom would not want us to feel sad. She'd want us to feel guilty. You know? <laughs> and you know, there's so much truth in that. And, 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 I, and I asked myself the question, why do I think when I fail that somehow God wants me to feel guilty? You know, that I can't really move on until I felt guilty enough. <laughs> and God says, I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to feel the joy of your salvation. That's what I want you to feel. The person in the casket's not your mother. It's the Son of God who lay in the tomb for you. God sent his own son. And his mission in life is your forgiveness. His mission in life is that you would be forgiven and that you'd know yourself to be forgiven. What do you and I think we should add or could add to that gift? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.25, Jesus Christ is the one whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood so that you are now, you are now justified by his grace as a gift. You know what? God's mission has succeeded. And we need to recognize that. When Jesus is on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He's praying for me. He's praying for you. And don't you think that the Father, God the Father, would always grant God the Son the requests that he offers? I know sometimes I don't get the things answered that I prayed for in the way that I pray for them. But I'm pretty sure the Son of God prays according to the will of the Father. And he gets his answer. And his answer is that you would be forgiven. And me too. And we know how God feels about David. Because Nathan comes a second time later on in chapter 12. And he said, you know, this child that's going to be born of this union, this illicit union, uh, is going to be named Jedidiah. We know him as Solomon. That's his throne name. But Jedidiah, the Lord wants David to know this is the name. And you know what Jedidiah means in Hebrew? Beloved of the Lord. This guy can take even the consequences that come out of my failure and yours and redeem them. And continue to bring his love into our lives. And that's, that's what's meant to define our whole lives. Not any single moment. A broken spirit is a hopeful spirit. Let's receive God's forgiveness and share it. Jürgen Moltmann, a theologian, writes, Christian hope is the power of resurrection from life's failures and defeats. It's the power of life's rebirth out of the shadows of death. It's the power for the new beginning at the point where guilt has made life impossible. 
The Christian hope is all these things because it is spirit from the spirit of the resurrection of the betrayed, maltreated, and forsaken Christ. Through his divine raising from the dead, Christ's hopeless end became his true beginning. And I would add ours as well. And there was a new beginning for Lance Easley as well. You remember the referee? Lance Easley, he's um, apparently now coaching basketball. <laughs> and uh, one day he was in the high school gym in Santa Maria, California, where he lives. And somebody stepped out of the bleachers and put a hand on his shoulder and said, Lance, how are you? And Easley replied, I'm alive. To which the spectator said, well, I saw you right before you were dead. And Easley laughed as he walked away and turned over his shoulder and said, I'm resurrected. And so are you. Let's pray. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for marking us in the waters of our baptism. Giving witness to the fact that no matter how we feel, we are forgiven. We have died to sin in Jesus Christ. And with Jesus Christ, we now live alive in him. We pray that you'd pour out a fresh measure of your Holy Spirit to disrupt the sense of failure in our present that we might live into an unimaginable future, the one that you design and draw for us out of the beauty of your grace. I pray that we'd help one another receive that gift as well. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.